Well, I think it's a, probably a somewhat obvious and uh, readily apparent observation when I say that we live in a broken world. Whether you read the newspaper and, and hear about things that are happening in the, the global world and that we live, or whether we think about our own trials and struggles and difficulties, uh, it becomes apparent rather quickly, quickly that we live in a world that's broken. In a lot of ways, it seems like our world is increasingly getting more complex. It's a world that's constantly changing. And in the middle of that, I think there's all sorts of questions that we as people have about how do we, how do we find our way through this world? How do we navigate a world that's broken? And how do we find a sense of, of meaning and purpose and stability and significance in the middle of the broken world in which we live? And, and I think this is a question that humanity has asked and wrestled with uh, since the time of Adam and Eve. Right? God designed and created humanity uh, to live in relationship with him, and Adam and Eve chose to rebel, and it resulted in this broken relationship with God. And that, that broken relationship with God resulted in, in a broken world that we experience day in and day out. After they rebel against God, Eve is told that her pains in childbirth will greatly increase and that her relationship with her husband will be sort of broken. And, and Adam is told that by the sweat of his brow and the toil of his hands will he work to bring forth the fruit of the, the earth. And, and fundamentally, we realize as we look at their story and as we talk about our experience that we live in a broken world. How do we find a way through? How do we find a sense of meaning and purpose and significance? And in the middle of those questions that we wrestle with that are sort of at the core of our being, the core of our existence, I think is this other question that comes alongside that one that's just as fundamental, and it's this question of what are we going to base our life on? What are we going to begin to build our life on? Because what you build your life on and build your life with determines the structural integrity of our life. It's no different than, than physically constructing a building, right? The materials that you use in constructing a, a building are vitally important. Because if you cut corners on materials, you sacrifice the structural integrity of the building. So if you're going to build a wall, a brick might not be a bad choice, right? It's sturdy, it's strong, it's stable, it's going to be able to withstand the elements. And I know if I build a brick wall, it will be able to withstand the weight of the, the roof trusses that are set down on it, and it will be structurally sound. So building a building out of brick is, is, is really a great idea. Now, there's a problem with this brick in that it's, it's fake, right? So if, if I were to build a house out of these bricks, this would be an incredibly poor decision. Now, this is, this is uh, deceiving because it looks right. It looks like it has substance. It looks like it has structural integrity. But in reality, it's foam. Now, if I build a house out of this, this is going to be an incredibly big mistake because as soon as the wind comes, which is inevitable in South Dakota, it's always windy, right? This thing is going to blow right over. And so these bricks that, that look right, but in fact have no structural integrity, no substance to them, they can't withstand the weight of the rest of the structure set down on them, right? So here's the question. What are we going to build our life on? And is the thing that we are building our life on, can it withstand the weight of our hopes and dreams and fears and insecurities? And th this question is vitally important as Paul begins to teach and to talk to the church at Corinth in Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. We're going to pick up there. Paul says this in verse 18. He says, Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you might actually become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. 
As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or the present or future. All are yours. And you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. This, then, is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it's required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. So Paul right away begins teaching to the Corinthians, and part of the problem in the Corinthian church is that some of them had been pursuing this wisdom and knowledge and understanding, supposing that if they could just gain this deeper wisdom, that they would have a sense of safety and security and stability. There's a sense in which they wanted to be self-sufficient. The problem is, Paul says, don't be deceived. He says, the wisdom of this world looks substantive, but he says, if you build your life according to the wisdom of this world that God actually sees as foolishness, he says, the problem is it actually lacks substance. And the wisdom of this world and of this culture cannot hold the weight of your life if you build on it. Don't be deceived, Paul says. If you think you're wise, you must become foolish, he says, because the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's eyes. And so Paul begins talking about here two types of wisdom. Not at all that appears wise is actually wise. And Paul talks about what he calls the wisdom of this age. And the wisdom of this age is, is what culture, apart from Christ, calls wise living. It's what our culture, apart from Christ, calls wise living. Now, I, I want to flesh this out a little bit for us to give us some tangibility to this idea. And there's a pastor and a professor by the name of Henry Nouwen who talks about three uh, things that, that sort, of, sort of give shape to what we might call wise living in our culture. He says these are places that we draw a sense of identity and safety and security from. And so his argument is that we tend to draw a sense of stability and security and safety from what I do. And so part of this is, say, career or vocation, um, some of this is the roles that I have in life, a husband, a father, a stay-at-home parent. He says another place that we tend to draw a sense of identity and security, a place that we tend to build our lives on, is uh, what we have, what we possess. And so this might be things like material possessions. Or the education that I have or the relationships that I have. And finally, he says, we tend to draw a sense of identity and security from what others say about us. Which is to say, our reputation. Now, I really do think he's onto something here. Because I think if we were to ask people on the street, do a survey, and say, what does wise living look like? What does it mean to be successful? How do you find a sense of stability and safety in this life? I think probably a lot of people would say, well, if I can get the right career, if I can get the right job and make enough money to put enough money in the bank, I can plan ahead appropriately for my retirement, I'll be financially safe and secure. If I can just possess the right things, have some fun in life, uh, if, I, if people speak well of me and they like me and I have these relationships that people uh, speak well of me, then, then there's a sense of this is what wise living might look like. This is how our culture might begin to define wise living. And another reason I think he's onto something here is I watch uh, people on social media spend hours and hours curating an image of themselves that they want to project to people. 
right? And, and I think we're good a lot of times at putting a lot of stock in the roles that we play. We want people to think we're athletic or that we're a really successful parent and, and look at how I'm achieving well in the roles that I have in life. Now, let, let me say this. These things inherently in and of themselves aren't bad, right? Having a good job, a good career is not bad. Material possessions are not bad. Education, I think, is a great gift. I think uh, having a good reputation, these are good things. But listen, I think good things become septic when we remove any influence of God on these things. So the the tendency of the wisdom of our world is to say, listen, if you can uh, achieve a sort of equilibrium, be financially stable, be financially secure, be rooted in, in a sense of success, then you'll be able to safely navigate this world. Our tendency is to try to be self-sufficient. This is the first observation I want to make about what it is to live according to the wisdom of this age. I think it results in an inflated sense of self-sufficiency. Really, it's an attempt to do life on our own strength. And and you'll notice as Paul's writing, towards the end of chapter 3, he mentions four or five key things here. He says the world, life, death, the present, and the future. He says these things belong to you, which we'll push into a moment. But I think what Paul gets at there are several places that tend to be for us a source of anxiety, right? You look at the world around us. We talked about it being broken. Sometimes that can be a source of anxiety. We look at the present and the future. How many times do you wake up and you know you're going to have a hard day and you go, I don't even know if I can navigate this day in front of me. Or or you think about the future and the uncertainty that it brings. And and I think there's a sense in which for the Corinthian people, they were thinking, if I just get enough wisdom and understanding, then I'll be able to find meaning and purpose in death and we'll be able to understand what might happen in the future. And they they were attempting to do life in a way that was self-sufficient apart from the influence of of God in their life. And, And I think sometimes we do something very similar when we try to get the right career, possess the right things, and we hope that this will bring us a sense of meaning and purpose and fulfillment. And we try to do life in a way that's self-sufficient, I think in part because we're not really sure if we can trust the weight of our life into the hands of God. And so we think, I'll try to control what I can to be as successful as I can to establish for myself a life of security and safety to manage my insecurity. Right? This is the other thing I think that's happening there is that sometimes we live according to the wisdom of this age to try to manage our sources of insecurity. I don't know what the future holds, But if I plan well enough, maybe I can establish a sort of safety net for myself, whether financially or relationally, to navigate what might come. Now, I I think there's a couple of dangers in living according to the wisdom of this age. And and I think Paul highlights them well. And what he does is, is Paul cites two Old Testament passages to highlight the danger of living according to the wisdom of this age, the wisdom of our culture. First, in inciting Job chapter 5, verse 13, he says, that God catches the wise in their craftiness. And one commentator said, in the original language, uh, there's this sort of image here of a hunter using the, the craftiness of their prey to actually catch them in a snare or a trap. And here's the reality, is that living according to the wisdom of this age can become for us a trap or a snare in which we find ourselves caught. And I think what it looks like is we, we attempt to find meaning and purpose in something like career, and so we begin to invest all of this time and energy sacrificing other meaningful things, and we find ourselves actually kind of being controlled by this thing. Or we want to have a good reputation, and so we are constantly trying to appease people or to please people, and we find that this thing that we thought would help us, a good reputation where people like me, actually becomes something that controls us. 
And it becomes for us a trap and a snare that we find ourselves caught in. The second thing that Paul does is he quotes Psalm 94, 11, and he says that the, the thoughts of the wise are futile. And I think the second danger of living according to the wisdom of this age is that we actually find ourselves moving and working really hard towards what's actually a dead end. And again, it's not that these things are bad, right? These are good things, provided we do so, surrendering them to God. Now, when we live according to the wisdom of this age and try to do them on our own, self-sufficient, without God's influence in our life, these things actually become futile. Because listen, while a career is a great thing that's successful— If this is where you try to find meaning and purpose, it ultimately won't fulfill. Now, relationships are a good thing. But if you try to find meaning and purpose and fulfillment, it will ultimately let you down. If we try to root our identity in a relationship, it ultimately can't provide what only God can speak into our lives as our creator. And the things that we work so hard to achieve can actually, in the end, become for us a dead end. And I think to live according to these things, to pour all our time and energy into pursuing just these things is to live as if this life right here is all that matters. It's to have no attention towards the life to come in eternity. So Paul says, listen, the wisdom of this age, be careful because it can become for us something that is a futile pursuit. So there's that question again. What will we build our life on? And are we building our life on something that can hold the weight of our hopes, dreams, identities, fears, and insecurities? I can remember uh, this moment as a child when my brother and I, we were at my grandparents' house, and they lived out in Arizona, so we went down there in the winter to escape the the cold Indiana winters that were kind of like South Dakota winters, maybe not quite as cold. And so we're, we're down in Arizona, and my brother and I, because we're super cool, we're riding scooters around the neighborhood, right? And I don't mean like mopeds, I mean like the, the scoot scooters, right? Super cool, I know. You can be jealous, it was awesome. So we're, we're riding scooters around the neighborhood, and my brother decides he's going to do this sweet trick. He's going to pop the curb, right? So he, he's riding alongside of it, and he tries to jump it, catches the wheel, and just biffs it hard, right? He comes up holding his hand in a funny way. And he runs inside the house, and he sits on my grandparents' couch. And I have this image in my mind of him rocking back and forth going, it's not broken, it's not broken, it's not broken, right? But he's in pain, right? He can hardly stand it. So they take him to the hospital, and they, they take x-rays, and they find out, you know what? Actually, in fact, it, it is broken. And they're going to have to set it, and they put it in a cast, and, and it allowed it time to heal. Listen, here's what I think happens sometimes. I think sometimes we pour our life into these things, trying to find meaning and purpose and significance and fulfillment. And and at the core of who we are, deep in the pit of our soul, we have this sense of pain and we have this sense of something being empty and something being wrong. But we tell ourselves, I'm not broken. I'm not broken. I'm, I'm okay. But there's these moments when someone says something harsh to you and we bite back or someone says something to us and we spend all day thinking, why doesn't that person like me? And these things that we think shouldn't affect us actually affect us to the core of who we are. But Paul says, don't be self-deceived if you think living according to the wisdom of this age will will, will make you wise. It can't hold the substance of your life. And sometimes I think we attempt to self-deceive ourselves saying, I'm not broken, I'm not broken, when in reality, the, the pain that we feel is symptomatic that something is in fact broken and missing in our lives, that we cannot be self-sufficient. So Paul begins talking about the second kind of wisdom. He talks about the wisdom of God. 
And the wisdom of God, I think, to live according to God's wisdom means a couple things. I think it means to pattern our lives around God's truth and God's character. It's to pattern our lives around God's truth and God's character. And Paul does something subtle in this passage, but I think incredibly intentional. Right? The people at Corinth, they've been pursuing wisdom and knowledge and understanding, thinking of uh, their life and faith as sort of this academic exercise. If they can be perceived as wise by the world around them, they'll, they'll have arrived. But do you notice how quickly Paul points them back to Scripture? Right? If you look in the footnotes of your Bible, in chapter, or verses 19 and 20, right, we see the Old Testament references that Paul mentioned earlier. He begins to point the people of Corinth back to the wisdom and the truth of God's word. So if we're going to be a people that live according to God's wisdom, I think part of what that means is having lives that are immersed and saturated in his word. And what we see in here, we actually begin to live out. I think, too, this means patterning our lives around the character of God that we see in Scripture, lived out in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, Paul says, you want to see what wisdom looks like? He says, the wisdom of God is Christ crucified. I mean, talk about the wisdom of God seeming foolish. I mean, okay, let's... If I was going to hatch a plan to redeem the world, I would come in and I'd think, okay, we have to get the best people on our team. We have to get positions of power and influence, right? So it would make sense if God is going to re- redeem the world, why not send his son as an emperor, right? He's got political power. He's got influence. He's got authority. And then let's give him a bunch of soldiers that he can lead and conquer the world. And God can establish his agenda through power and influence. But, but, but the mystery of the gospel, the wisdom of God is not that he sends his son to conquer the earth. The mystery and the wisdom of God is that he sends his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross in service to us, exemplifying a life of self-sacrificial, loving surrender. And this is what Paul previously, 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, has described as the wisdom of God. It looks so fundamentally different than the way that our world functions. So here's some observations about living according to God's wisdom. Uh, Number one is, I think, to live according to God's wisdom sometimes looks incredibly foolish. Right? Paul tells us this. He says, you think you're wise? He says, you should become fools, right? It's in quotes. Because he's saying, you're going to look foolish to the world, but what they perceive as foolish is actually wise. Now, let's, let's think about this. So, if what I do, my career, is something from which I draw identity, and it's something where I find meaning and purpose, and I think it brings me a sense of safety and security and stability, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to keep that job and actually maybe to move up the ladder to make more money. So, the wisdom of this age might say, in the place where you work, maybe it's a competitive environment, and you know there's someone you're kind of competing for the same promotion. The wisdom of this world would probably say something like, you should get caught up in the political games, and as you have opportunity, you should undercut and undermine the character of that person. That manager that's above you that you feel like is incompetent, maybe if you make enough snide comments to their supervisor or send enough emails talking about where they messed up, that maybe you could step into their position. What would it look like? Maybe the wisdom of God, as we pattern our lives around God's truth and the character of Jesus, maybe the wisdom of God would say, yeah, that person who's competing with you for the same promotion, what if you actually tried to serve them well? And maybe you catch a problem or something in the presentation they're about to give and you say, hey, just so you know, I saw this and you might want to fix that. Or maybe that manager that you think is incompetent, maybe the wisdom of God that calls us to live and to love in self-sacrificial ways would say, 
how can I serve them well to help them succeed? It, it seems foolish, doesn't it? And, and people around you would say, what are you doing? You're missing an opportunity. This is your chance to climb the corporate ladder. And there's times and ways in which living according to the wisdom of God, the world around us is going to look at us and go, what, what are you doing? And I think that's an inescapable fact because the wisdom of God looks so fundamentally different than the wisdom of this world. A couple more observations about the wisdom of God. I think it reframes our purpose. We begin to recognize that it's not all about me. And as we live according to the wisdom of God, we recognize that just like the disciples, that we are a sent people called to be about the mission of the gospel. I think we realize that living according to God's wisdom begins to redefine our identity. This is the next observation. Notice what Paul says in chapter uh, 3, verse 23. He says, you were of Christ. You belong to Christ. Our identity is rooted in him. And I'm going to flesh this out more for us in a second. But if we're going to live according to the wisdom of this age, look foolish, have a new purpose, have a new sense of identity, we're going to be conspicuous. This is my last observation. Living according to the wisdom of God will cause us to stand out from the culture around us. We're going to look fundamentally different, and that's okay. I think sometimes we try so hard to blend in with the culture around us that we, seek, or we cease to have a prophetic voice into that culture. And so I think there's this question again that I want us to wrestle with. What are you building your life on? Are you building your life on the wisdom of this age that I think in part looks like drawing a sense of meaning and purpose and security and stability around what I do, what I have, what other people say about me? Or will we be a people who push into what it means to live our lives according to God's wisdom? And listen, when we live according to God's wisdom, this becomes a transformational thing in our life. Our lives begin to look fundamentally different. And part of what happens is we begin to have a new identity and a new source of security, right? I mentioned this briefly, but let's push in to verses 20, 20, uh, 21, 22, and 23. Paul says this. He says, so then, verse 21, no more boasting about human leaders. Don't you realize all things are yours? He says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, the world or life or death, the present or the future, all those things are yours. Okay, what's Paul saying here? Part of the Corinthian people were attempting to define their identity based on which leader they follow. So Paul came and was a founding uh, important figure in the life of the Corinthian church, but then comes Apollos, and he's from the city of Alexandria, and he's this skilled speaker. He's got this deep wisdom and understanding, and he's someone that Corinth is in Greece. They look at Apollos and think, man, this guy's the epitome of wisdom. And people begin to align. Oh, I'm with Apollos. He's, man, he's brilliant. I'm following his leadership. But Paul says, wait, wait, no, 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 no. He says, don't draw your identity from us. He says, don't you see that Paul, Apollos, we belong to you. If you look at chapter four, Paul says, this is how you should regard us. We are servants. Don't draw your identity from me as a leader, Paul says. He says, I'm actually here to serve you. I belong to you. I'm living my life in service to you as the church. What about these other things Paul mentioned? He says, the world, life, death, all of these things are yours. John Piper, in, in his message on this passage, he says, we have to look at Romans chapter 8 to bring some clarity here. Romans 8.28 says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Verse 31 says, what can we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
But God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he also, not along with Jesus, graciously give us all things? And I think what Paul is saying here is he says, listen, you are of Christ. You belong to him. And things like the world and life and death and the present and future, God holds all these things in his hand. And he will begin to work in and through these things for your purpose, for your formation, for your well-being. Hear me, listen to this, please. I'm not saying it will be easy. I'm not saying this means that God removes all trials. What I'm saying is that when we encounter trials, when we encounter difficult things, we trust and believe that somehow in the mystery of who God is, he can work those things out for our character formation, for our spiritual formation, and can somehow in and through those things work those things out for our good. And this is not a trite thing to me. This means in those places of deepest, darkest, most broken areas, the places where we want to lose hope, the places where we say, God, why in the world would you allow this, that God who holds all things in his hand, is somehow working redemption and restoration and healing right in the middle of those places, even if we don't understand. And I don't pretend to understand how God does that. And there are things that we will encounter that we say, God, what in the world are you doing? And the question for us, if we will build our life on the wisdom of God, is not, can I do this in my own strength? But it's, can I surrender my life to him in a humble way and say, God, I trust that even though I don't know what the future brings, I believe that you hold the future and so I can step into that trusting you because I belong to Jesus. And part of what that means to say I belong to Jesus is to acknowledge that we are not self-sufficient. It's to acknowledge that as competent and as capable as we might be, we cannot do life in our own strength. That we are designed and created to be in a relationship with him. And that's a humbling thing. I think the second way that this is transformative is that when we live according to God's wisdom, we're building our life on a new foundation, not the wisdom of this age. We begin to build our life on God's wisdom and truth, and it means that we find ourselves with a new sense of mission and a new definition of maturity. Right? Paul says in, in chapter 4, he says, this is how you ought to regard us. He's talking about himself and the other leaders. He says, we are servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries of God. And so he says, listen, our fundamental identity is we are servants of Jesus. And he uses this word, entrusted. The word entrusted there is this Greek word, oikonomos. And it's a compound word that means house law. And what he's talking about is he's talking about in the ancient world, it was common practice for the wealthy to have a servant who was the administrator of the household. And the administrator of that household was the one entrusted to oversee the master's agenda in the household. And Paul says, listen, as a servant, my agenda ceases to be my own. My agenda is, is just facilitating God's purpose and plan and agenda. And so fundamentally, our lives begin to have a new sense of shape and purpose and definition. Now, here's the problem uh, with what I drew earlier. Did you notice the operative word in here is what, what I do, what I have, what other people say about me? If we live life this way, it collapses our existence around us. There's a, a, a story told about a narcissist who's having a conversation, and he, he's talking to this person, and he says, you know, I, I went to this place, and I did this thing, and he's talking on and on about how great he is. And finally, this narcissistic person says, okay, okay, enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think about me? 
right? And sometimes when we live this way, life begins to collapse around us. And, and suddenly what happens is we use relationships to have a sense of identity. People only have value to the extent that they can make me look better and feel better about myself. Listen, when, when we become people who live according to God's wisdom, when we become his servants and say, I'm going to surrender my agenda and take on God's agenda, these things become fundamentally changed and different in the way that we approach them. And what I want to challenge us with is to be a people who have God as the central focus of our life. Now, sometimes when we, when we talk about the spiritual life, we talk about it in terms of hierarchical priorities. It has to be God first, family second, work third. And that's not all altogether bad, but my, my concern is that in the midst of that, what we think is, okay, if I spend 40 hours at work, I have to spend 45 hours with my family, and if God's my top priority, I have to spend at least 46 hours with him because where we spend our time is where we really have our priorities. And so we find ourselves locked in this legalism. But what I want to challenge us with is to keep God central in our lives. So if God is at the focus of our lives, and around this we have things like family life and relationships, and perhaps around this, we have things like work, career. But when God is at the center of our life, this means, I think sometimes what we say is, okay, I'm going to spend my time with God, and then I have family time, but my, my relationship with God is separate from my family time. And then I step into work, and my relationship with God is somehow separate and distinct from my work. What I'm saying here, when God is central, is that God begins to somehow fundamentally transform the way that I engage in family life. He begins to transform the way that I engage at work. Because when God is central, when I step into my work environment, my question becomes, how can I be about the mission of the gospel? How can I be about the, 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 the uh, agenda of the master, even in the place where I work? And God begins to transform the way that we interact with things like work and career and family life. And suddenly, these things are transformed. Suddenly, it's not, what do I do? The question becomes, how can I serve? Suddenly, it's not, what can I gain or what can I acquire? But it's, what can I give to other people around me? And suddenly, it's not about what do other people say about me. It's about what is the legacy of service and investment that I can leave for other people. Because listen, reputation is about the perception that people have of you. But reputation can be like a foam brick. It can have the appearance of substance, but actually lacks substance. Legacy is about the truth and the reality of the way that we are investing and serving in the lives of other people. And when God is center, he begins to change and transform who we are. He begins to turn our life outward on itself. The reformer Martin Luther talked about what sin does is it causes life to curve inward. Part of what God does in redemption is he begins to curve our life outward on itself. And as we live according to the wisdom of God, with him central, he begins to transform the way that we engage with work and family and every aspect of our existence. So how do we begin to respond in the middle of this? I've got three ideas. I'm not saying these are the totality of the way that we respond, but I want to begin to give us a sense of direction. I think one of the first ways that we begin to respond is we, we abandon worldly wisdom and self-sufficiency. I think we have to get to this point where in a moment of confession we say, you know what, God, I cannot do life on my own. I've been trying to pursue things according to the wisdom of this age, and it just can't withhold the weight of my life. It can't bring ultimate meaning and purpose and fulfillment. God, I can't do this on my own. I need your grace in my life. I need your strength in my life. And this takes, I think, a great level of humility to admit that we can't do it on our own, to acknowledge that we need God's grace. There's a deep sense of confessional humility that I think is needed there. 
Secondly, I think we have to accept the wisdom of God. And when, when I talk about accepting the wisdom of God, I don't just mean mentally saying, yes, I can believe this. What I'm saying is to accept God's wisdom is to live according, to live according to his wisdom and truth and to define our lives by his character. It means we actually live out what God calls wise living in his word. It means we actually live out the character of Jesus that we see. And the beautiful thing is, as we keep God's center, it's not that I have to try harder to be loving. It's that God, from the very core of who I am, begins to transform my life and give me the heart of love. This is not about self-sufficiency. This is about surrender and sacrifice to say, God, I can't love and serve others well unless you, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, are are central in my life. So I think we need to abandon self-sufficiency and worldly wisdom, accept godly wisdom, and I think we need to have an ardent, passionate commitment to the mission of the gospel that gives a new sense of meaning and purpose and direction for our life. And the question is, will we step into that? What are you building your life on? Does it have substance? Can it withstand and withhold the weight of your hopes, dreams, insecurities, and fears? When all of those things are set down on your life, will it still hold up? I'm going to pray for us. And the band is going to lead us in a moment of reflection. And I would encourage you to, to not just let this be a moment of music, but really focus in on the lyrics and think about what we're saying. Part of one of the lines in the song is, God, be my everything, be my delight. What does it look like for, to let God be our everything, to find our sufficiency, not in ourself, but in him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. And uh, God, I pray that we would be a people who live our lives according to your wisdom and your truth. God, sometimes it's easy to look at the world around us and look at what culture describes as wise living and, and to invest ourselves in those things. But God, I pray that, as Paul says, that we would be a people who become fools in the eyes of the world, that we might step truly into your wisdom. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and mercy that makes this all possible. We pray this in Jesus' name.